Remember, freedom is a gift from God. Choose to accept it, guard it, nourish it, share it with your loved ones. Don't let anyone take it from you. Choose to be free. Learn how to choose freedom with your host, Dr. Baruch Platner. Welcome to the show, my friends. You know, one of my uh, biggest uh, loves in America when I came to America was baseball. And I love baseball analogies, too, because to me, baseball is so representative of how America used to be, right? It's a sport that on one hand is a team sport, right? Because you, in life, you do need a community, you need a team, you need um, a structure around you, you need some sort of laws, regulations, umpires, if you, if you like. But baseball, unlike any other sport that is also a team sport, is an individual sport. So... It's that combination of individual ability and, and that team, um, a necessity to play as part of a team, I guess, that is so indicative of how America used to be. You know, in, in uh, hockey, in, in football, in soccer, in basketball, it's much, the, the, the orientation is much more, the emphasis is much more on the team. But in baseball, if you come to think of it, it's really the focus, the spotlight is much more on the individual. So baseball consists of these vignettes, of these individual duels between the pitcher and the hitter. And the catcher is, is kind of in the hitter's corner, right? And he's giving him these advices. Uh, um, uh, he's, uh, uh, I mean, the catcher is in the pitcher's corner and he's giving him this advice, he's calling the pitches. And um, uh, it's, it's just so, so interesting, right? It's this, it's this uh, um, match of wits and um, athletic ability, right? And so, uh, but, but when the ball is hit high up in the air to the center field, it's the center fielder's job to go and catch it. Nobody can really help him, but also nobody is really allowed to interfere with him. There is no defense as such. In other words, the center fielder is the defense, and he's alone there in this vast expanse of grass uh, trying to make that impossible leaping catch. So uh, baseball is all about individuals doing their best while playing within this uh, team framework. And I think it's not surprising that baseball gave us <clears throat> so many, you know, aphorisms and um, so massively influenced uh, the American vernacular English language. So, for example, baseball is what, where we get expressions like from left field or Southpaw, and uh, so on. And um, the first, uh, the word fans came uh, first from uh, the realm of baseball. 
because and it's an abbreviation fans is an abbreviation of the word fanatic you know early in early 20th century when baseball kind of uh, left the colleges and universities and town squares and became more of a, what we would today what we, what we would today call a professional sport and places like Fenway Park in Boston were built and Wrigley Field in Chicago I'm talking about um, 1910s and so on there there uh, developed in America this um, group of people who were baseball <coughs> fanatics in other words they fe- they they were very passionate about uh, the sport about baseball and uh, you know they followed the teams they uh, came out to see to see the teams uh, in in those open air venues and remember uh, there was definitely no TV or internet uh, but there may have been radio and that was quite poor so your only other way of catching uh, the, the 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 game in real time was to hear to this crackling radio and the guy was describing was doing the play-by-play, but nothing could really match um, being out there on the field, right? There were no high-definition TVs that would focus on the pitcher's face or anything like that. Um, and fans poured into those stadiums and supported their teams. And this is where the expression fair-weather fans comes from. Because, as you know, baseball is played in the summer, but also, but it starts fairly early in the spring, like in April, and goes through October. And in many parts of North America, you can get all kinds of weather during those uh, times, including even in August, where you can get thunderstorms, downpours, and so on. So, yes, baseball games are stopped when it's raining heavily, but you certainly play through drizzle and wind and cold and heat and everything. So real fans would sit through all of that. They would get wet, they would, they would bake in the sun, they'd be cold, they'd be hot, but they would be there to support their team. Fair weather fans would be quite the opposite. They would only show up and support their team when the weather was nice, when it was sunny and 75 degrees out there. And it was only then that they would show up to support, uh, to to root for their team. Well, since baseball is American life, or at least was, we can apply the same uh, analysis to what is happening today with President Trump and the November 3rd election. And if you read the Twitter that is on uh, our side, you could say, on the Trump side, you could get this feeling that Trump has a very strong, very active, kind of all-weather base of support. But when you take your eyes off the screen, when you leave Twitter, and uh, you look around you um, without putting on any colored glasses, uh, neither dark nor nor pink. Uh, you know you can see clearly that uh, the Trump support is not the all weather kind, but quite the opposite, the fair weather kind. 
if Trump had a real core of all-weather fans, of dedicated, passionate fans, those fans would be out there now on the streets of America with signs that say, stop the steal, or Trump four more years, or you name it. No to, you know, no to Joe. You can make up your own sign. And, you know, America's future has always really been determined not in any kind of courtroom or even in the halls of uh, Congress or in the White House. America's future has always been determined on the streets of America. And that goes back to before 1776. I mean, the American Revolution didn't just happen uh, from, you know, it didn't go from full stop to 60 miles an hour in a nanosecond. We know that all through the first half of the 1770s, <clears throat> there was a pretty massive unrest in American cities such as Boston because Americans did not feel, um, they, they did not feel represented by uh, the colonial government, they did, they did not feel um, loved by the colonial government, they did not feel that they were considered by the colonial government, and rightly so, first-class citizens. And um, they didn't like it. Or at least some of them didn't like it. And those who didn't like it, you know, they didn't try to appeal to King George III or um, to the Parliament on the River Thames in London. In, in fact, they did try to as well. And there were appeals and there were letters written and all of that through their various representatives. But when that failed to solve the problem, <coughs> uh, they were out on the streets. They were out on the streets making their feelings abundantly clear to the uh, redcoats, in other words, to the British uh, colonial troops. They they made it clear to them that they were not welcome in America anymore. And it was those feelings that were expressed through action on the streets by the uh, regular Americans, by regular Americans, that pushed people like Ben Franklin and John Adams and <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson to the elites. In other words, they were pushed from below to say, hey, you know what? This is true. There is a new nation forming here over the last couple hundred years or maybe 150 years. And this nation deserves independence. Had regular Americans not been on the streets, there is no way that their elites would have made the judgment that they deserved the title of a nation, of a separate nation from that of England or Great Britain or the British Empire. It was that street action that motivated the elites to seek independence. And what the elites needed to do was to take that popular sentiment 
and pour it into documents, into Enlightenment era intellectual documents like the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution. And it fell to skilled military tacticians like George Washington to then defend this nationhood, this new nationhood, and this new independence from the British Empire, who, who wished, obviously wished to keep it, to keep North America as its colonial possession. Uh, the same is true for the Civil War. During the run-up to the Civil War, uh, all over, for example, New England, people went to church and they heard from the pulpit, from their ministers, very fiery speeches in the abolitionist mode. And those speeches described in horrific detail the evils of slavery in the South. And they excited the people to, to go out on the streets and demonstrate and make their um, repugnance of that, uh, as the Southerners called it, peculiar institution, abundantly clear. And when President Lincoln, um, when the Republican Party was formed and President uh, Lincoln, before he was president, ran, when Abraham Lincoln decided to run for presidency on this abolitionist platform, <clears throat> he did so because he knew that there was a tremendous amount of support for abolitionist policies in the North. And he knew that people were Americans in the North were passionate enough uh, as to the cause of uh, the abolition of slavery that they would enlist in the army and fight for it if, if, if need be. Had, had there been no such thing, in other words, had, had Lincoln not seen this popular hatred uh, of slavery in the North, had Northerners not been out there on the streets marching uh, to, you know, in favor of the abolition of slavery, Lincoln would not have uh, would not have followed the course that he followed because he would have had no troops with which to with, with which to accomplish those goals. And we can skip forward, for example, to the Vietnam era. America lost its its war in Vietnam and signed and signed uh, a document of surrender substantially in 1973, which was full of lies that uh, South Vietnam would survive. And when Kissinger signed this document and when Nixon told him to sign it, they knew full well that uh, they were signing a document that uh, had no truth in it and that the North Vietnamese would overrun South Vietnam within a short time and, and that America had failed to defend its South Vietnamese allies. And nevertheless, they did so. They signed this uh, instrument of surrender substantially because they knew that America and Americans did not wish to pursue this war to a victorious end. Right? And how did they know that? They didn't know that because of the Congress or the Senate or the Supreme Court. They knew it because of massive demonstrations on the streets of every American city. 
So on the streets of every American city in uh, from the late 60s through when this uh, uh, American surrender was signed in Paris in 1973, there were massive demonstrations against the war. Against the war. And many of those demonstrations were led by veterans who fought in that war. And you would have been hard-pressed to find a younger person in America at that time who supported that war or at least supported it enough to organize a counter demonstration, right? So if you looked at America, all you in, in, the, in the late 60s, early 70s, you could see that it had no desire to continue fighting that war, which is precisely why America lost it. Because guess what? It wasn't only Nixon who was looking at those demonstrations. It was also the North Vietnamese and their allies, the Chinese communists and the Russian communists. So the Soviets and Mao Zedong, you know, the Soviets at uh, that time, I think it was already Brezhnev or part, uh, first part was Khrushchev, second part Brezhnev. And then Mao Zedong, they were looking at these demonstrations in America and they were saying, well, there's no way that America is winning this war. If we can just keep supplying the North Vietnamese with enough weaponry to keep killing American soldiers, and if we tell them to hang in there, America will surrender. And that's indeed what happened. We'll continue this segment uh, or this discussion in the next segment. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Welcome back to the show, my friends. So uh, we finished the last segment before the break talking about the demonstrations uh, against the Vietnam War in the late 1960s, early 1970s that led to America's defeat and surrender in that war. Now, it was a war that America militarily was certainly more than capable of winning. But uh, it was just the case that uh, most Americans did not wish to fight that war. They don't, did not understand why they had to fight it. And they were not uh, prepared to make the necessary sacrifices to win it. And I'm not, uh, I'm not saying anything about whether that was the right assessment of the situation or the wrong assessment of the situation. All I'm saying was, or all I'm saying is, that Americans back then made it abundantly clear to their political leadership that they had no interest in uh, that war. 
and they would uh, and they did not want to fight it, and they did not want to die in it, and they did not want to sacrifice uh, themselves uh, in the Vietnamese jungles. And so Nixon had to uh, send Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, to go and sign uh, what amounted to a, an instrument of surrender in Paris with the North Vietnamese. And as far as the Cold War went, it was a big blow to America's uh, interest and to America's prestige. But that's what to ha- that's what had to happen because there were more people in America by far who were passionate about stopping that war than there were Americans who were passionate about continuing that war. And you know, and you can throw in this mix also the demonstrate the civil rights demonstrations. Uh, that in, in many cases coincided with the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations and uh, led to the massive uh, civil rights legislation in America, which did away with things like uh, segregation uh, and um, various uh, other types of overt discrimination against minorities in America, especially against African Americans and so on. Um, you can throw in the mix uh, the demonstrations by the suffragettes to get the uh, to get the vote uh, the vote, vote voting rights for women in America, and you could throw in the mix demonstrations by the temperance movement that led to the kind of peculiar, interesting, and somewhat disastrous in, uh, experiment with. Uh, <clears throat> banning uh, alcohol in America. All, all of those massive societal changes in America were, and from, the, from America's very beginning, they started and they got going and they were achieved by people on the streets, by regular people on the streets and not by people in courtrooms or in the halls of Congress and in the White House. And when we're looking now at the at what's happening with President Trump and the so-called Make America Great Again movement, we can see that this movement, uh, I'm sorry to say from my perspective as a kind of observer of history, we can see that this movement is undeserving of effecting in America real change. And I say that with a heavy heart because I think that this uh, MAGA movement has a lot of good points that it wants to make. You know, the points that it, it, it it's a movement that wishes to retain in America the concept of individual liberty. It's a movement that wishes to retain in, or, or to maybe regain for America this idea of uh, national pride, of pride in things like manufacturing, agriculture. It's a movement in America that wants to at least somewhat reverse the tide of money and power from regular folks in smaller towns and in the countryside 
to the elites in the large cities. And I think that's a very good thing because way too much power has flowed uh, in that direction. So it's a worthy movement. It has good goals and maybe has good bones. But what it does not have is all-weather fans. Mega people, and we can see it very clearly now, are fair-weather fans. Because if they were not fair-weather fans, they would be now on the streets. Right? But they're not. And a few demonstrations here and there don't count. And going to Trump rallies doesn't count either. The only way that the kind of change that the MAGA movement wants to supposedly enact in America could be achieved is by massive demonstrations. The demonstrations the likes of when America was founded. Demonstrations the likes of, the, of those that were seen in favor of the abolition of slavery. Demonstrations the likes of which were seen promoting the end of the Vietnamese war or the war in Vietnam. The demonstrations the, the likes of which were seen promoting the temperance movement and prohibition. If you go outside of America, for example, to Israel, my home country, so we have this Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who by every metric was very successful over his quite long tenure. But there is a large part of Israeli public that really dislikes the guy. And every day, every day, there are massive demonstrations against him in Israel. These people are out there. They're spending their time. They're possibly skipping work. They're uh, uh, sometimes uh, risking being briefly arrested or, or getting into altercations with the police. But they're out there making their point, and it can work, maybe. I disagree with them completely, but I also have a lot of uh, respect for their uh, putting their bodies where their mouths are. They're, not, they're, they're on Twitter too, you know, tweeting all kinds of ridiculous things about Mr. Netanyahu. But they're also on the streets. And that's what, that's what I do not see from the MAGA movement. And there could be a lot of reasons for it, which perhaps need some historical perspective to really fathom prop or to really evaluate properly. You know, many people, when I put, put those thoughts out on Twitter, they say, but we have jobs. But excuse me, don't you think that people who uh, demonstrated against the British redcoats in colonial Boston had jobs? Don't you think that they had families? Don't you think that they needed to provide for those families? I mean, this narrative that the liberals show, show up to their massive demonstrations because they don't have anything better to do, it's, it's a ridiculous narrative. It's a ridiculous narrative. It's us lying to ourselves. Because jobs are not, most people would rather, get, uh, you know, do whatever they do, even if it's sit on a TV and <clears throat> smoke a joint, than go out there on the streets. 
People go out there on the streets and demonstrate when they feel passionately about something. Not because it's their preferred, uh, you know, pastime. And so what I have to conclude is is that people on our side do not feel passionately about President Trump, about President Trump's Make America Great Again agenda, or about any of that. Okay, and that is why President Trump is not going to be president for the other uh, the next four years, because whether this election was um, stolen, in other words, uh, whether massive fraud occurred or not, is to some degree beside the point. Elections are not won just by people going there, casting their ballots, and going home. No. Elections are won by that and also by the leadership making sure that those elections are fair. In other words, that the vote counting process is fair. And that was uh, President Trump's job in which he miserably failed. And then on top of that, elections are won and change is affected by people out on the streets making their political point of view, peacefully known. There is a reason why the Constitution guarantees, right there in the beginning, the right to peaceably assemble and petition the government. The reason they put it in there was because that's how America started. It started by Americans, uh, colonial Americans, peaceably in the beginning assembling and petitioning the government. They were telling the British government that unless it changed course and saw them in them more of those first class citizens with representation and other rights, they would not take kindly to that. And that's how America came to be. Well, this right still exists in America, even with COVID. Why is it that even in states that are totally pro-Trump, like Florida, like, I don't know, you name it, Missouri, Dakotas, Idaho, why is it that in those states even, where it's totally safe to go and demonstrate in favor of President Trump and against the supposed steal of the election and all of that, why isn't that we don't see those demonstrations? Why are there no demonstrations in Pensacola, in Tallahassee, in Bismarck. I don't know the answer to that question, but there aren't. You know, what I would say is that um, President Trump, you know, it's it, a successful movement always involves grassroots support and passionate, effective leadership. So, for example, If you look at the American Revolution, those guys that uh, framed the Constitution and made it all happen were very effective leaders, each in his own right. And they had the support of a substantial number of passionate Americans who wanted independence. The Civil Rights Movement had grassroots support, but then it also had Martin Martin Luther King. 
as effective charismatic leader who also knew how to manipulate the powers that be, how to function in the corridors of power in Washington, D.C. with people like Lyndon Johnson. And there was a brief feeling maybe in around 2016-17 that the MAGA movement had those makings. In other words, that it had passionate grassroots support and it had, in the, in the person of President Trump, this effective leader who had on one hand charisma and uh, a bigger-than-life personality, but on the other hand had a grasp of the issues and the ability to wield power. And it's on these other two fronts that President Trump had failed. His grasp of the issues of what really motivates his grassroots support, grassroots support was quite lacking, in my opinion. He focused on, while he gave lip service to what he called drain the swamp, in other words, returning the power in Washington, D.C. to regular Americans, he made substantially zero progress in that direction during his entire term in office, which is, and that is most directly responsible for his uh, defeat and his being no longer in office from January 21st of next year. He did nothing to drain that swamp. When he had uh, major nominations to make and major seats of power to fill, like, for example, at the FBI, at the Department of Justice, at the CIA, he placed in those seats the swampiest of all swamp creatures, Gina Haspel, Chris Ray, Bill Barr. Even for appointments that were his own complete discretion, in other words, that required no senatorial confirmation or oversight, for like the chief of staff, he started with placing people who were uh, swampy. John Kelly, McMaster, uh, uh, for the, uh, the director of intelligence, those types of things, national security advisor, those are all his personal nominations that do not require, national security advisor, does not require um, senatorial confirmation. And yet he put John he put Bolton in there, right? McMaster before him. Globalists, globalists, and more globalists. But then, also, he failed to frame the substance of the Make America Great Again movement, not only from the perspective of draining the swamp and changing the balance of power in America, which was by far the most important thing, but also in another sense, which perhaps you wouldn't Im immediately see, and that's the economic sense. On the economic front, uh, Trump's 
main achievement, as he often said himself, and his main policy goal was cutting taxes and cutting regulations. And of course, in that, he was basically following in the footsteps of um, you know every run-of-the-mill Republican from Ted Cruz to Marco Rubio to even uh, somebody like uh, uh, Mitt Romney. Low taxes, low regulations has always been kind of the Republican Chamber of Commerce driven um, mantra. But is it really popular among the American people? And, you know, common sense or accepted wisdom says that it is. But in the next segment, I will argue that that is far from the truth. Stay tuned. My fellow Americans, you've watched for decades as radical Marxists have systematically taken over some of our nation's most cherished institutions. And like us, we're pretty sure you're not happy about any of it. But this is the America we now find ourselves in. AmericaOutloud.com is fighting back with one of the fastest growing conservative media networks in the world, featuring some of the nation's most influential experts and commentators. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the show, folks. So, um, what I want to uh, focus on for the last this last segment of uh, this show is um, the utter failure of the Republicans' twin pillars of low taxes and conservative judges. For the past several decades, the Republicans, uh, were, Republicans were running for presidency, for Congress, for Senate, for every federal seat uh, with this, uh, the, these twin ideas of lowering taxes and uh, filling the courts with so-called conservative judges and justices. And Trump has been no exception. In the end, his first term is really unexceptional uh, in terms of being just a regular term, first term of a Republican president, except a few notable uh, places. For example, his foreign policy was quite a departure, and I think that's where uh, history will remember him uh, the most kindly what he did vis-a-vis Iran and uh, Israel and uh, uh, the various uh, petro states on the Arabian Peninsula such as Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, uh, Saudi Arabia and so on. Um, So his uh, foreign policy was quite different, much more successful and for for that I think the world owes him uh, a debt of gratitude or at least 
the part of the world that uh, you know I care about. <laughs> he also put a check on Chinese ambitions to some degree and uh, kind of uh, rattled NATO allies to um, maybe kick in a few more dollars and and become a little bit more vigilant. Um, he also did some things about uh, immigration, legal and illegal. Those will be reversed very easily by the Biden administration. So that's not something that will be lasting. But other than that, you know, for America's internal policy, domestic policy, he substantially governed uh, as any Republican president would. And I think that's where uh, th that's one of the sources of his downfall, if not the source of his downfall. And I'll tell you why. Start with the taxes. I think that most Americans, uh, contrary to maybe popular wisdom, especially among uh, in the Republican circles, uh, don't care about taxes or reductions in taxes. A typical American family pulls in Oh, I don't know, sixty grand, or or maybe between uh, the, both the husband and the wife, a little bit more than that. <clears throat> when you look at the taxes that they're paying, uh, any kind of tax cut will, like the Trump tax cut, put another oh I don't know, a grand, a grand and a half per year, per annum, in their pocket. But what does that mean when, if you just want your kid to go? to college and get some baseline normal education, like become, let's say, a mechanical engineer. Well, if, if, if he or she go to, goes to a state school, tuition is about 15,000 a year. So over four years, that's 60 grand. And if he or she are good enough to go to what's called a private school, like Northeastern, even in, in Boston, which is not like one of the top, top schools or let alone, you know, but things like Caltech or MIT or, you know, even Georgia Tech. Well, if you go to one of these universities, you're going to be paying forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year for a grand total of 200. And that's before living expenses. Very, very few American families can afford to pay any kind of money like that. And that's for just one child. And uh, if they can't afford to pay it, then they burden their kids with this enormous debt. And perhaps it's one thing to graduate law school or med school with a quarter million dollars in debt, which is also ugly. But... When you're graduating as an engineer with a Bachelor of Science degree and you know making your first job making 50 grand a year and you have $200,000 in debt, that's just ridiculous. And it's, America is utterly unique from that perspective all over the world. In Canada, if you go to a school in your province, your tuition over four years may be something like 10, 12,000 Canadian dollars. If you go to out-of-province schools, school, and some Canadian universities are in every way equivalent to the American Ivy Leagues, you may be paying close to 
nine, $8,000 a year. So your total education may cost you 40 grand plus living expense. Nowhere in the world is, this, is there this obscene cost of education that exists in America. And what are American parents and students paying for when they're paying this obscene tuition? Are they paying for a better education? No. No. They're paying for, you know, VP of race relations who's making $250,000 a year. They're paying for all kinds of marble and granite buildings that nobody needs to get an education. They're paying for all kinds of things that have nothing to do with making them better engineers or lawyers or doctors or accountants. That's what they're paying for. And don't throw that free market nonsense at me because show me a university in America that says, you know what, we're not going to have any of that overhead. We're not going to hire any you know, equal opportunity counselors. We're not going to invest in marble and granite facades with Doric and Ionic columns. We're just going to have drab building with classrooms and laboratories and good scientists teaching good science. Show me where that university exists that does all of that and charges only ten or $15,000 a year in tuition. Where is it? Because I'd like to know about it. No, it doesn't exist because it's all a kind of cartel. They're all uh, playing this game, which is substantially uh, defrauding the American people with the full compli uh, compliance and complicity of the American federal government as well as state government. So don't tell me that a family can get very excited about $1,000 per year tax reduction when to put two or three kids through college costs the better part of a million dollars. And you're talking about a family where the mother is a teacher and dad is an engineer. And together they're pulling maybe 100 grand, 120. I mean, come on, it's, as Joe Biden would say, this is nonsense. Another thing is healthcare. The trend in the world today, and that's what most people want, is for your basic healthcare to be substantially a financial non-event. So I know it's a very complex issue and I'm not going to be able to cover it in the next minute or two, but it seems to me that most Americans are willing to make the, tra the trade of maybe longer waiting periods, maybe not exactly choosing your doctor, but also not opening up their uh, wallets for hundreds and thousands of dollars every time they have a minor health event. So when a working American family has a baby and the baby has a croup, and needs to go to a hospital and stay a couple days in an oxygenated tent, it's hardly, you know, anything uh, ground, uh, ground shaking. It's not a huge tragedy. The kid will be just fine. 
But what, what will not be fine is that you have a $2,000 deductible and all of a sudden you have to drop two grand on this otherwise, what otherwise would be just a hassle now becomes a major financial catastrophe for that family that, to be honest, does not have $2,000. Or even when you just go to your regular doctor for, you know, a case of the flu or something, and you have a $50 copay, well, for a lot of families, that $50 is a lot of money. And I believe that many, many, and perhaps the majority of people in America are now kind of turning the corner towards being willing to make the necessary trade-offs of higher taxes for cheaper, substantially cheaper education and if you want to call it socialized or single-payer or whatever you call it, but a kind of healthcare in which getting sick is not a financial event. It's a healthcare event, it's a psychological event, it's an emotional event, but it is not a monetary event or a budgetary event for your family. So, you know, when the liberals, the progressives, when, when they say that the, te- that the Trump tax cut was substantially a tax cut for the rich, they're wrong but they're also right. They're wrong because most Americans benefited from this tax cut, but they're right because most Americans benefited from this tax cut marginally. This tax cut did not change the financial situation of the vast majority of Americans. It's really only people who make uh, who make uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, six-figure salaries and and plus, for whom these tax cuts were significant enough to maybe change their fi- their financial picture. For most Americans who are working regular jobs, sure, it's nice to get another grand, you know. Sure, it's sure maybe you can afford a trade in your car or truck for something a little better. But that's not really something that changes your family budget. This, this, this is not even remotely similar to all of a sudden being able to put your two or three kids through college without financially worrying about it or without putting them into massive debt out of which they can never substantially recover. So... Yeah, that tax cut was for the rich, really, you know. And uh, when you look at, and, and since that was Trump's kind of crowning glory, well, it wasn't that much of a glory for most Americans. Same thing when you look at the, when we look at the stock market. The stock market, I don't want to talk about it too much because I'm not an expert. I don't want to kind of give any misleading advice, but... There's a lot of people saying that we are in a bubble. Uh, Biden's uh, taking uh, control of the American uh, power. uh, power In Washington is probably not going to change it here or there. Uh, Trumpian 
prophecies that the stock market will collapse and there will be a depression when Biden is, or if Biden is inaugurated, are not going to come true. And uh, we can see that right now, because if they were, the stock market would be already collapsing. And the reason they're not going to come true is because uh, the globalist powers, those corporations, big tech and whatnot, will not allow it to happen, at least not immediately. They will not allow the visual of uh, the result of Trump being deposed, being some sort of a severe economic downturn. So that's not going to happen. But there were things that Trump completely ignored in his first term. He ignored the need in America for a spiritual revival, for a revival of American values, the values of individual liberty of more limited government. In fact, Trump printed more money and then, then many before, of course, there was this COVID event. He borrowed more money. He expanded the, si the, the, the size of the federal government. And many of his arguments with the Democrats in the House of Representatives were only on how ridiculously large will be the next spending package. And significantly, Trump was often on the side of making it bigger, not smaller, than what the Democrats want. So in other words, Trump positioned himself in his first term as quite the opposite of the champion of a limited, fiscally responsible government. He positioned himself as the champion of government as your daddy, as a government that takes care of you. Even in his, what I found the most objectionable in his tweets was often not the kind of impolite language, which I don't care about one way or another. In fact, it can be, some, it can be quite entertaining and it's not, that's never a bad thing. What I found to me, a little bit offensive in his tweets were, were, were kind of how he often uh, ended them by the word enjoy. As if we were all participants in a circus, a la Roman, you know, breads and circuses kind of idea. And he was the MC. He was the master of ceremonies whose job was to keep us entertained rather than a serious and revolutionary politician who was going to lead America back to its foundational values. And that's the reason, if you know, to summarize, that's the reason that Trump lost, even if he won at the polls, doesn't matter, he lost. He never rose to being that Moses figure that uh, guides his people from bondage to liberty. In his heart of hearts, he, he never departed his role as a, as a showman, as an entertainer, 
And that is not what American people need right now. Join me next time, stay free, and see you, and see you at the next show.